Ooh, Ooh the sounds of sweet vibration. Mm, so sweet they are. I have to say, this is one of my favorite, favorite sex toy companies because one, you have a sweet ass time, but also, I mean, they have so many different options for you. And look how pretty and fun they are. They're bright colors. They do all kinds of exciting things. There's one that goes around your clit in like surround sound. There's one that (laughs) simulates um, conolingus. It doesn't vibrate. It kind of blows air. I love these. Also, all of them are waterproof. All of them are rechargeable. They come with a discreet travel case, USB charging cable. I mean, this really is absolutely amazing. Plus, there's a lifetime warranty. So if you're looking to have a sweet time with sweet vibrations. For a long time. For a very long time. Mm-hmm. You can check them out on Instagram at Sweet Vibrations and online. Visit SweetVibes.toys. And we have a little promo code for you. We do. It's wild love. And you get 15% off at checkout. That adds up. Have some fun. Woo. You guys, I cannot be more excited to officially record and launch our very first podcast together. Me and Wednesday, True Sex and Wild Love is happening right now. It's happening right now. We're together kind of an unexpected match and it's been such a hot match we're on fire and we have interviewed the most unlikely collection of people academics polyamorous people authors um radio hosts radio hosts people who do UFC body work, fighters a doula <laughs> a goddess <laughs> a goddess there's so many and the great thing about you and i is you bring the scientific backing and all of the studies and you really back all of this up. And I talk about every single personal thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> but let's not forget that you're a relationship coach and you bring a lot of knowledge to this as well. And I try my best to bring fun. And you certainly do. <laughs> Love it. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. Enjoy, guys. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness gracious. Right? Yeah. So Wednesday, I when I started reading your book, it changed my life, and I gave it to all of my girlfriends to read Aww. as well. Thank you for doing that. Basically, I wouldn't be friends with them if they didn't read your book. Oh, <laughs> it was like a test. Yeah, it was an ultimatum. Yeah, it was an ultimatum. You drew a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. Like this book, mm-hmm. or we're not friends anymore. Right. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure that I can trust that they really liked the book. They but- really liked the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you for advocating for my book. Oh my God. I'm so glad it spoke to you. Yeah. There's no way it couldn't have, you know, for me, it was, it took me through the whole journey of when I would date people and then I would wake up and say, "Mm, you're nice, but I'm super bored (laughs) and I have to leave now or cheat on you because I usually chose to cheat instead of leave. And look what you did. You developed a counter strategy. You, You came up with a plan so that you could do a workaround your sexual boredom. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to leave every time, which I really admire that you figured out a solution and then lived it in the face of a lot of stigma and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and a lot I, of yeah. pain. But I think, in a way, you're very typical of our ancestresses mm-hmm. who were really quite um, brilliant sexual and social strategists. And that's the reason the human species is here. Exactly the kind of thing that you did. You found a breeding strategy, if I can say that, or a sexual strategy Mm -hmm, and a social mm -hmm. strategy that worked for you. Yeah, exactly. I didn't think it really worked for me at first. I was like, what the hell am I doing? And why am I doing this? It was just like pain, 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 pain. And then it was great. It's like you have to like get to the top of the mountain right. to really understand and then you start to feel good about it and you start to realize that it's bringing up it's it's beneficial for you and your life and it's made me like a better person. It made me a better human, a better daughter, lover, friend, everything because I was constantly having to look at my crap. Do you think I think one of the things I've heard you say is that when you're in an open relationship there you have to communicate about everything all the time. So do you think that's what has made you also a better daughter and friend that mm-hmm. you upped your communication skills? Yeah, because you can't 
I, I was always, my entire life, I was always afraid of expressing. I was always afraid of talking about how I really felt or what my emotions were. I just never really, I would stuff everything. Mm, um, you were a stuffer. I was a good old stuffer, mm. like a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just never really wanted to do that. I didn't want to be vulnerable vulnerable around anybody. So I think it's a twofold. One, being vulnerable, I think, makes the connections mm -hmm. to whereas a lot of the times we think, oh, we need to be strong. We need to put this face on when mm -hmm. really opening up and talking about your hardships and what's difficult for you and what you're learning and what's challenging creates those connections and you mm -hmm. become closer with people mm -hmm. um and then yeah just being able to talk about things and if there is any confrontation or anything that comes up being able to sit down and have a conversation about it instead of pretending it's not there because I feel like we so often pretend that things aren't there and we just turn a blind eye and then right. what happens then you know resentment starts to come up and then it starts to de deteriorate the relationship mm -hmm. because of resentment mm -hmm. resentment is the monster that eats love yeah it and is. friendships, family, relationships, the the whole spectrum. Yeah. It's gnarly. And the communication is a good pushback to that, mm -hmm. to the resentment. I think a lot of people might tend to start to feel resentment and then fall into that experience. But I think that people who are poly and in open relationships, if they've had the practice and put in the time, um, they can work around the resentment. And I think that that's one of the reasons that people in um, open or poly or swinging relationships have so much to teach people who like monogamy. I mean, there's a book in that. Somebody should write it. You know, mm -hmm. what, what monogamous people can learn from swingers, polyamory, poly people, excuse me, and, mm -hmm. and people in open relationships. Yeah, the lessons and go across the board. The lessons go across the board. And I think we think that monogamists, um, you know, are better. They're our baseline. They're the baseline of mental health. They're supposed to be more mature. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, the data show that people who are consensually non-monogamous consistently report lower levels of jealousy, and therapists talk about how their consensually non-monogamous clients and patients have great communication skills. So um, I think monogamous people have a lot to learn from people who aren't monogamous. Yeah, and isn't the highest jealousy rate in mm. monogamous relationships? Yeah, Terry Conley presented a paper at the STAR conference that stands for the Society of Sex Therapists and Researchers conference in 2018 in Philadelphia. She presented a paper and uh, she discussed that the highest rates of jealousy were in the sample that she looked at were among monogamists and people in relationships where the policy was you can go off and do your thing, but it's don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, people who identified as polyamorous or swingers reported lower levels of jealousy and higher levels, other studies have shown higher levels of sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. So, and she thought that one of the reasons that people in don't ask, don't tell relationships and monogamous relationships uh, felt so much jealousy and reported lower sexual and relationship satisfaction is they weren't part of a community. I mean, if you're monogamous, it's sort of like the world is supposedly your community, right? right? Because we think that it's the right way and the only way. And if you're in a don't ask, don't tell relationship, um, you're really pretty isolated because a lot of those people don't feel they can come out to their peer group and their families about that. Meanwhile, if you're into poly or if you're a swinger, you have a big community. Mm -hmm. um, swingers go on cruises together. I um, wonder what that cruise would be like. Oh, a lot of fun. I bet. Have you been? No, I never have. But, you know, and the swingers have clubs and cruises. and They have events like every weekend. Yeah, Open and Love in New York, which is for poly people. Open Love has a board game night. And they have <laughs> cocktails and mixers and movie nights. And wow. They're building a community. And so they have social 
support. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel alone. And they have a space of other people telling them how to work on jealousy, how to work on being in a relationship. And they don't feel like they're creating the roadmap themselves. They have a culture. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important piece to understanding. It's an important key to unlocking success and feelings of happiness in a sexual um, or romantic relationship. So what's interesting, I think, for people is the don't ask, don't tell relationships because a lot of the times when I talk to people, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, I would be down to do some sort of unconventional relationship as long as it was more don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. But what I would think is because we never did don't ask, don't tell. We went straight from monogamous into open and you talk about everything. Mm -hmm. I, what I would think about a don't ask, don't tell is that you're withholding some information and let's say you guys are at home with each other mm -hmm. and you want to go hang out with somebody. What are you going to be like? I'm going to go get some milk at the grocery store. <laughs> you're just lying. Like I, this is, these are the things that I start to think about. And then you just start to create. So you're lying to your partner. And then maybe when you aren't with your partner, you do create these stories and assumptions yeah. because you're filling in the blanks about what could potentially yeah. be happening. Right. And I think that people who are, um, in polyamorous relationships in the United States, one of their core beliefs is about transparency mm -hmm. and telling your partner and being open about it, if you will, and not just um, saying, I'm gonna go off for a, I'll see you in a couple of hours. Um, now, I wanna just say that there are some therapists and thinkers about relationships, like um, one of my favorite therapists is Michelle Schenkman. And um, she's South American, and she writes a lot about infidelity and um, non-monogamous relationships. And she talks about how in Europe and many countries in South America, there is something called the segmented model of marriage or of a primary relationship, where instead of expecting that your partner in your marriage or long-term relationship is going to provide you with everything, um, especially sexual excitement after many years, um, that's considered in these cultures a pretty unrealistic expectation. And there's just kind of an understanding, a relatively unspoken rule, although it'll be spoken about if people want to bring it to the surface, that you can get a lot of wonderful things from um, a dyad, as mm -hmm. anthropologists call it, <laughs> and over a long-term socially monogamous relationship. But Sexual excitement isn't one of them. So it's appropriate um, to go off and seek that somewhere else without trashing your marriage. Um, it's appropriate that you would do that and that you would protect your spouse or long-term partner and protect to protect their feelings from it. You would protect them, in quotation marks, um, from the information. So there are these different, and, and there are many in those contexts in some of these European countries and South American countries that Michelle is writing about, um, there are many examples of this working successfully. So I think cultural context is really important. Yep. And poly culture in the United States, if we want to call it that, um, is a really specific example and they really value transparency and telling. And then what you guys are doing is interesting to me um, because you're sort of articulating a culture. You're using a new language. I know you don't always use the term poly. Sometimes you guys use the term open. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's interesting how you're creating a community and some peer support. And it seems like you're taking rules from different places and making it up as you go along. And one of your core values is transparency. Oh, yeah. So that, that sort of links you to the poly um system of belief or yeah. the polyculture. Yeah. And it's like we're taking different ideas from every way of possibly doing a, a relationship and creating like a buffet. Yeah. <laughs> and right. This is what we're serving. And if mm -hmm. you would like to eat, this is what you have to bring to the table. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've been at this for five years five now. Five years. Right. Yeah. So Aubrey and I have been together for seven. We were monogamous for two, split for three months, and then five months or five years now we've been open poly. It started off more as open, I guess, even mm -hmm. though that's a don't ask, don't tell technically mm -hmm. open-ish type of vibe. Um, and then now we consider ourselves poly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I think you have both talked about how Aubrey initiated 
your transition from monogamy into um, an open, what you guys call an open relationship. And um, the data um, are really interesting about um, women often doing it. I mean, we don't have good, strong studies about it, but I misspoke. We have anecdotal data. So a lot of the experts that I interviewed when I wrote on True told me that, for example, many therapists told me, oh, it's the women who come to me for couples work. They come in the couple and it's the women who are driving the decision um, to be open, to you know, change the rules in the relationship. And the husbands or the men um, in these heterosexual couples are usually more reluctant. Um, the other, which surprised me, it's counterintuitive um, based on how I was brainwashed to think about male and female and sexuality. how we all were. Yeah. And how we all were. And then the other thing that they say to me that's so interesting, and last night at the event that we did, you and I um, and Aubrey, I talked to a couple... Um, they're swingers. They have um, they have a counseling service called Open Love One Hundred and One, and they're swingers. And we were talking about the anecdotal data among swingers that many times a man will initiate that he wants uh, the relationship to that he wants to try um, this to be in the lifestyle, and the woman might at first not be interested. And then there's this expression, but when you let the genie out of the bottle, she's not going back in. (laughs) And so that tends to happen a lot. And Shrinks told me that I interviewed, um, told me about that a lot. David Lay, who studies hot wifing, um, talks about how many times these women go into it reluctantly, but then once they're getting this sexual variety and novelty and getting this sexual adventure, they're very into it. And sometimes their male partners will say, we need to rein this in. We need to go back. (laughs) And, And many times the women say, Oh no, and and so that kind of runs counter to many of the things um, that we've been taught. So that was one of the most interesting parts of writing on true, learning about how women often initiate this. But it fits it fits in with what we know about female sexual boredom mm-hmm. and how many people you know value a primary relationship and want to stay in it, but they want to adventure adventure together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and that's something that I found in my coaching too. Is it's mainly women reaching out saying, I'm interested in opening up my relationship, but I don't necessarily how to know how to bring it up to my partner. Or can you help yeah. us transition into this? And okay. um, so that was really right. cool. So you, okay, this is this is more anecdotal data yeah. about it. And you know, it's funny, that I w- want to um, talk a little bit about women being hesitant to talk about it. Do they tell you why they're hesitating? What's their hesitation? I think they're just afraid. They're just afraid of what of it ruining their marriage or ruining right. their relationship. And right. a lot of the times people who have talked about it, the man is just so reluctant mm-hmm. to doing it. Yeah. Because they just can't imagine. Like they're okay with going out and doing their thing, but as soon as their wife wants to do it, it's it's a issue. Yeah, I think a lot of men are caught up in the – well, I think it violates a gender script for mm-hmm. women. First of all, when women say that they want to open up their relationship or they'd like to try an adventure together or separately or let's hire an escort or let's go to a swinger club or whatever we're going to do, I think when women initiate that kind of thing, they're violating the social script that says monogamy is the best, healthiest way. But they're also violating – they're going against a gender script which says, well, women are more, you know – sexually reticent and coy and choosy and women are less sexual. So I'm the men that they're in a relationship with often are feeling that, are feeling like this is emasculating or like, is there something wrong with my wife or girlfriend that I'm not enough for her? Mm -hmm. Why am I not enough for her? And this isn't how women are supposed to be. So I think that's like one of the terrible confusions that happens. And it happens because we don't understand female sexuality. We've been spoon-fed a steady diet of lies about who women are and what women want. Right. And that makes it really hard for men too, especially when women are being women and saying, I need some variety and novelty and adventure. So what about sexual boredom? Because I am I mm. love talking about this and I know it's very controversial and it gets people heated up. It's funny because we talked about it last night Mm -hmm. at the event we did. And one of the things I always do when I talk about female sexual boredom to groups of heterosexual people and especially heterosexual couples 
is you have to be really careful and acknowledge that, you know, this is not a criticism or a referendum on the men in these women's lives. Um, it happens with lesbians too. Um, and so it's not any reflection I try to tell men because, um, you know, they can get very hurt by this. It's mm -hmm. not a reflection on their skills or their value. I think it's important to just stand back and look at the information and use it as an opportunity to learn about your female partner and to understand her better. So, but I can see how it can be upsetting for men if they don't, if we, if we don't frame it for them that way. So the basically, you know, there are many studies um, that show that long-term relationships are hard on desire, but they're especially hard on female desire. And so the newer studies and information about this are showing us um, that the institutionalization of a relationship and of roles, um, over familiarity when you're sharing a bathroom, right? When Pooping. <laughs> all these things. <laughs> Why did he leave his used dental floss on the, whatever. <laughs> over familiarity. Um, these things dampen female desire in ways they don't dampen male desire. And a friend and I were joking that like, um, how do you bring this point home? And of course there are exceptions and we're talking about women in the aggregate and men in the aggregate. But the example that my friend and I came up with is like, if you, you know, use the toilet and forgot to flush and, and your boyfriend or male partner had to flush your poo down the toilet, um, he would maybe be okay with having sex with you a few hours later. Whereas <laughs> a woman would tend to be like, no. Right. Uh, that, and that's just one example of the ways <laughs> that I just had to go to the most extreme example. But there are other ways in which, you know, just over familiarity is very hard on female desire in ways, ways that it isn't on male desire. But again, it's not a referendum on men. It's just this new finding about female sexuality. And I think that when people can look at it without feeling implicated by it, um, it can help us get to a place where if you want to be monogamous um, and you're female or you have a female partner, you have this information and you don't leap to the conclusion, oh, there's something wrong with my girlfriend. She's She wants variety and novelty and adventure. My dick isn't enough for her. Mm -hmm. And the woman isn't saying there's something wrong with me because I'm supposed to like sex less. I'm supposed to be wired for monogamy. So I think the information can help people in heterosexual relationships understand each other better. Yeah, and be lesbians in, in in a relationship with another woman, mm -hmm. with women, uh, help understand each other better. Yeah. Men, it's not totally your fault. It's okay? not. It's not your fault at all. No. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole range of normal. We, we talk about this, you and I, that, you know, we evolved as flexible sexual and social strategists. So, look, if you're a woman who – monogamy is your jam and you feel comfortable and happy there that's normal if you're right go yeah, for it go for rock it. it out rock it out Hell have fun yeah. with that and then when you come to the point as you probably will where you need some thrills you can get it in a monogamous relationship any number of ways so that's normal and it's also normal if you're a woman who struggles with monogamy and says, oh my God, this is so hard for me. It's also normal if you're a woman who says, I really love this guy or woman that I'm with, but I'm having a really hard time with the sex part. Um, my passion has waned. Then that's also normal. And now, you know, we have a discussion going in our culture more than before about what can you do about that? Mm -hmm. What are your approaches if you're, you know, in a longish term relationship and like most women in the aggregate, your passion is waning, your desire is going down faster um, than your male partners is because that's what the data shows us. For women, it happens within years one to four. And then it doesn't really tend to level off. Men continue to Basically, there are exceptions, but to basically, in general, men tend to be better at wanting and enjoying the sex that they can have. Esther Perel has said women have a harder time wanting the sex that they can have. Basically, men are better at wanting what they already have in the aggregate than women are. Because they're just getting laid or what? They're and just that, down with it? Or 
we just we know that the things that dampen female desire don't dampen male desire okay. in the same way in the aggregate. Yeah, your chart like it's the line for female sexual desire after x mm, amount of years, yeah, three years is just it's like it's just plummeting. It plummets, it just bombs. Right. So that's Dietrich <laughs> Klusman's study, right, at the University of Hamburg at Eppendorf, and he looked at um you know a wide range of ages of people, and right, he he. His study showed that in a group starting at age 18 up to people in their late 40s, um, what was consistent is that female desire tended to take a real nosedive uh, within the first four years, whereas male desire ebbed much, much more gradually. Oh, but the other interesting thing about that study is that the effect isn't there if you don't live together back to that overfamiliarity piece and the institutionalization of roles piece that's hard on female desire. Mm-hmm. So the women who didn't live with their male partners were still feeling desire for them because they were making an end run around this conundrum. <laughs> making an end run around the shared bathroom conundrum if we want to sum it up in one way. So I joke sometimes when I talk to people, um, you know, do you want to stay in a long-term committed relationship with this guy? Um, make him move out. <laughs> or fi- have your own apartment. You can be married and super committed or just very committed and not live together. Maybe this is something um, that would help women who think that they've gone off sex, but they've just gone off sex with the same person over and over, and they love that person and they want to stay together. Um, at having some separateness, you don't have to go to the extreme of living separately, but building separateness into your relationship, it turns maybe, out, can help women a lot. Yeah, and even maybe just getting a hotel a hotel room by yourself one or two nights a week or just you know separating, sleeping in your own bed by yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm, or I mean, and, and then inviting him to come there. Yeah, and you're, you know, that could be really sexy. The other thing that some therapists talk about and recommend, I think you and I maybe have talked about this before, is they recommend you're in a long term relationship with somebody, you're married, and you're kind of losing your passion for him. Here's a thought: when you show up for date night. Don't show up at the restaurant together. Don't feel like in the bathroom together getting ready. Don't even see each other. Come directly from work or work it out so that you're showing up separately. Yeah. And see your person across the room and feel that thrill as you see that person. Maybe he hasn't seen you yet and you're looking at him and he's separate from you and he's somebody that, you're you know. You're staring at him from yeah, across the room. Exactly. And so a lot of times people find that that can work for women. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine last night at our event, actually, who brought in role play into their relationship and not just in the bedroom, but outside of the bedroom. Okay. So they start their role play like out at a bar. Okay. And they're coming to meet each other and it's like they're on a who date. Who is this and, guy? Yeah, exactly. Like, who are you? What do you do? Like, they just go full on and they've been together for like 15 oh, years. So fun. And they say so just sexy. starting so that. So female. Yeah. And they said just starting that was so great for their relationship. It just cranked up the passion just right from the get-go. Oh, that's what I should have said to the guy who asked us last night. And he was so sweet and wonderful. And he said, what can I do? He said, I get that this isn't my fault, but I want to do whatever I can do. I hope he he's so listening. Sweet. I hope he's listening. Yes. And I hope that, so there's a great thing. Pretend you don't know each other. Mm-hmm. Show up at a bar separately and, um, you know, seduce each other. Yeah, mm. how fun. You know, it would be really great uh, for female desire is show up at the bar and see somebody um, interested <clears throat> in your in your partner, mm-hmm. whether it's a female partner or a male partner. See somebody else showing interest or let them watch as somebody else shows interest to you. Oh, game on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because you're re-triggering this sense of newness with Mm -hmm. each other and seeing the person's sexiness refracted through the eyes of somebody who hasn't slept with them and who finds them desirable. So there are all kinds of tricks we can play um, with how female desire tends to dampen 
in a long-term relationship, we can play tricks and we can get around it. That for me is the really good news about that data and why it's disheartening to me when men feel broken by it or Mm. implicated by it or that it's a criticism of them. It's an opportunity to find new ways. Right, exactly. And it's just, it's it's opportunity to find new ways. It's bringing freedom to the relationship because you're not constantly wondering what's wrong with you or what am I doing wrong. And yeah, it's just a great conversation to have. It is a great conversation to have, especially in the face of, you know, just so many studies and so much anecdotal information pointing to this thing that we have not wanted to see over and over again. I mean, I talk about um, the Finnish study of female desire, which showed that, you know, long-term relationships are very hard on female desire. Um, there's a study of people aged 18 to 25, and they found that relationship duration was predictive of women losing desire, but not of men losing desire. So there's study after study, but we haven't wanted to see it. And I think the sooner we can see it and look at that data and not not feel that you know it's a personal assault against us, um, the the more we can help people continue to feel, you know, I want to have sex with this person. I'm not going to walk away from this relationship because I'm not sexually attracted. And you talk about uh, the strategy that you had when you were younger, and I had the same strategy in my 20s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, meet a guy, feel really attracted. Yeah, awesome. Get into so it. sex. We're sex in insanity, mm. right? Sex yeah. in the initial phase of the relationship, total sex insanity. The sex insanity and all the sex and stuff gets you all bonded yeah. and into each other. Like, um, wait a minute, maybe we're supposed to be really together. like it. Let's move <laughs> in together and then wait. Within years one to three, or for some people, their time frame is different for some women. Suddenly they're they they're having the sex that they can have, and it's not as exciting or interesting. And so they might think what you and I used to think, I have to leave this person. I have to get out of here. There's something wrong with this relationship. There's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. No, you're just a normal woman being a normal woman. Great. What are God. the solutions? Right. What, what are the things that we can do if you want to stay in this relationship? You don't have to trash the relationship. You don't have to cheat. Although I don't like the term cheat. Um, but there are things that you can do. And most importantly, this isn't a referendum on you, on your relationship, or on your partner. Yeah, get this creative. Happens. This happens to women in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, get creative. Get creative about how you can come up with ways to bring passion back into the relationship. Or if you want to try open, or if you want to try threesomes, or if you want to mm-hmm. go to sex clubs, or go to a swingers and party. And some people find all that scary, and the answer is, well, you could just go watch. You could just go watch. By yeah, yourself you or to... with your partner. You yeah. could just go check it out and... Like I said before, game on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The first time I went to skirt club. God, I want to go to skirt club so bad. Do you hear that, Jen? We need to get Whitney Jen, into the I next I really would love to come to skirt, skirt club. club. Genevieve Lejeune is my friend. I, the just founder start, of skirt I just requested club. to follow her on Instagram. I think it was yesterday. Oh, okay. So. Well, I'm sure it'll work <laughs> out. Um, the first time I went to skirt club, I went to several parties. And the first time I went, you know, I did a lot of watching and observing. And then I went home and said to my husband, you need to wake up now because I need to. (laughs) Honey. Honey. Yeah. So that even that can be, you know, even that kind of thing of just going somewhere and not participating. um, It's not just me. Many women have told me. And for some women, pornography can do that. I mean, there's so much stigma for women around porn. And so many women don't like porn because so much of pornography is focused on male pleasure and the male orgasm. And so much of it is, you know, I'm going to go out and and say it, just so woman unfriendly. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of um, emphasis in porn on female pleasure. But I think that it's like primatology or sex research. Um, when women went into primatology and when women went into sex research, um, we saw that we had more insights about who women really are. When women go into porn, when there is a woman who has a porn empire, um, you know, we will see that when when many women are producing porn, we'll see that there's a wider menu and there'll be more porn for women to enjoy. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that too. I can't really get into a whole lot of porn. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I try and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I'll just use my vibrator really quick. Okay, right. I'm done now. I mean, some, <laughs> yeah, some women really enjoy it. They enjoy the kind of porn that's already out there, some women. Um, and, but I think that we need a broader menu and we just need porn that has been, been produced, presuming women are going to be the primary consumers of this porn. Right. So we just need more of that. So yeah, more female, not just porn stars, but more female producers of porn, more female directors of porn. Woo. Because yeah, porn can be a great uh, way for women to re-trigger their desire, but it has to be the right porn. So Cindy Gallup is working very hard on that. Is she? Yep, she Tell is. Tell me more. Um, well, Cindy Gallup is a sex educator and a porn activist, and she basically wants to see more female-centered pleasure in porn and more women um, producing and directing porn. So um, God bless you, Cindy Gallup. Yeah, go Cindy. Yeah, go Cindy Gallup. So, you know, with that I took us on a little bit of a tangent, as I sometimes do. But um, <laughs> That's what podcasts are for. Right. We go on tangents here. <laughs> You're not following a so, script. Yeah, so, so I think that, you know, porn could be a great resource. It already is for some women, but to 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 address that conundrum of how hard it is to want what you already have, if you don't have time to go to a swinger party, if there's porn that you enjoy, <laughs> you know, you could just watch instead mm-hmm. of going to a party and watching. You know, but we have to we have to get there with the porn. This it's on the to do list. Yes, it is. That's on the the porn to do list and skirt club to do list. Yeah, you need to go. Um, talking about porn makes me think of an article I read today. It's called Scrotox. Basically, people are getting Botox in their scrotum. And I'm just wondering if maybe porn stars do this. Which I'm okay. just... Okay. I just don't really know about this because it says it, it, it after 20 injections for $500 to $800 a session, it makes your scrotum look like a new plum. So... is it so it's um men in the porn industry who are it's just men it's just regular old men okay so did it start in in the porn i have no idea because it's just porn and scrotox just seemed to me like they would go hand in hand right but this article was on playboy and it was just talking about normal people getting scrotox because they were insecure about how wrinkly their ball sack is and (laughs) in my opinion that is the craziest thing I ever heard. If I if I pull down someone's pants and they have a perfectly smooth scrotum, I'm going to think that it might explode and there's something wrong with it. <laughs> okay, let me just catch my breath for a minute because you took me off guard when I walked in today and you said, what if we talked about scrotox? And I said, I don't think I know anything about it. I have um, nothing to say about that. But I do have a couple <laughs> things to say about it. Okay, it sounds like, and I don't know if this is right, but okay, so what happens more and more now is that Porn, as and I say it as a person who, you know, sometimes I like to watch porn. You can find some um, that really works for you sometimes, although it can be very labor intensive. But um, one, so that's one of the upsides of porn is that it really works for some people. One of the downsides is that porn has become sex education in our country, mm-hmm. right? When um, Reagan ushered in an era of abstinence-only sex education, um, we're still living in the shadow of that. It meant that people couldn't get information from sex ed classes anymore, and that in turn put even more stigma around talking about sex in general everywhere. And so people, you know, in the last generation and or so have started turning to porn almost as a tutorial on what sex is about and what sex is like. And especially men have turned to it um, to figure out what women like. But what they're getting um, is usually a version not a, at all of what women like. No. Um, you often see in porn... Um, sexual positions that are the hardest ones for most women to have an orgasm in. Um, If you're seeing a woman have an orgasm, um, it might be real, but it very likely is not. Um, Porn sort of reinforces the idea that the male orgasm is the point of sex, right? With the cum shot, like that's it. All points lead to this And then then it's over. The whole video is over. over. Because sex is over, because sex is intercourse and intercourse is over when the man comes. Okay, these are among the many bad things that people are learning from porn. They're basically getting a tutorial on 
all the wrong things to do to get a woman off yep. in, in a lot of it. Okay. And then the other thing they're getting is lessons about how their body should be, right? So scrotalk sounds to me like something that might have migrated from porn culture into mainstream culture. I don't I know think. if that's true. I have no idea. But it certainly comes from the idea that every single part of you has to be photogenic and Instagram ready. And it's also like her. people bleaching their buttholes, you know, right. like – yeah. Sometimes you have a dark butthole. You know? <laughs> Sometimes. Whatever. And so like in the era of porn, um, it's almost like we all feel like we have to be porn stars for our partners at every moment. Yeah. You know what reminds me of this? Sorry, this is a funny association. But I was scrolling through Instagram, all these um, wonderful, strong, um, beautiful, accomplished women um, that I follow and who follow me on Instagram. And I noticed this new term, ugly cry. Mm. And it's a term to describe, to apologize that women use on Instagram now. Oh, here's a photo of me holding my sister's new baby. Sorry for the ugly cry. Oh, I crossed the finish line in this marathon and here's a picture of me. Sorry for the ugly cry. I mean, how are you supposed to cry? We're supposed to be gorgeous every second of every day, including when we're crying. Yeah. That's a lot. So it feels like almost like Instagram and porn have now put these pressures on the male body that you have to have a scrotum that's like a baby's bottom. Yeah. Hey, come on. And that's not. <laughs> that's just odd. I, yeah. Like I said, I just feel like it's it's like some weird mutant exploding ball sack of some kind. I don't know. I've never seen it in a person, but I'm definitely going to look up photos of this. I mean, I want to know also where men are getting, if this is purely an aesthetic decision, I want to know where men are getting the idea that this is what um, the women in their lives want, or if they're gay men, it, are they getting the idea and the feedback that this is what their male partners want? Um, I I don't know. I have no idea. And I also think it's a good point. You know, we're talking about perfectly smooth ball sacks and perfectly pink buttholes um, as well as... And crying beautifully. And crying. You have to look beautiful when you cry. And there's also the fact that like, sometimes sex, you smell. Like you have pheromones your your You're armpits kind of smell and sometimes that's freaking sexy your partner likes that like Aubrey, yeah that's why it's called getting get it up, on all up in my armpits okay yeah now i know yes he just <laughs> he loves he'll live in there yeah and i think this is what would be really cool for people to embrace the smells of their partner now okay yes there is a side to where maybe if there's something going on down there you should go to the gynecologist know the difference between the two smells however also enjoy your just natural musk. Right. You know what? It's funny because, I mean, olfaction and olfactory pleasure are a really big part of human sexuality. Um, my friend Leslie Voshal um, studies olfaction. She's an academic. She's super fun. She owns tarantulas. Um, she's just a great person. She studies olfaction and mosquitoes. Olfaction, what is that? Smell, your sense okay, of okay. smell. She says there are no bad smells. She loves, she lives in New York City. She loves the smell of garbage. She wow. loves it when somebody just puts on way too much perfume. She'd probably love the smell of your armpit. Maybe. She, she says there are no bad smells. And for my book on True, I interviewed her about the role that olfaction might play in female infidelity. And there was this series of experiments that some people might be familiar with. They were called the T-shirt experiments. Oh, yes. Yes. Remember, they had guys not use any deodorant, not use any soap for several days and wear a T-shirt. And then they turned the T-shirt in. And the researchers had women smell the T-shirts. And the women liked the T-shirts of the men they rated as sexy, the T-shirts of the men with whom they were a good genetic match. That's so That is, they were genetically different enough from the guy whose T-shirt smelled good to them that if they had sex with that guy and became pregnant, they were a good enough genetic match that that would be a robust pregnancy and much more likely to be a healthy offspring than the T-shirts of the guy that they didn't rate as sexy. So to make a long story short, 
Aubrey might be really into your armpit smell um, because you are. We're going to make some badass babies. Thank you for finishing my sentence for me. But we definitely (laughs) know about the t-shirt thing working for women. And we know that when women are on birth control pills, it messes with their ability to sniff out the man and find sexy the odor of the man who is the good genetic match. That is who's genetically different enough from them. So I was on birth control my entire life, 15 to about 20 seven, I mm. guess, that I'm 29 now. And okay. so when I decided to get off birth control, I was like, babe, what if we don't like each other off this? What are they just, what no. if I just think that you smell okay. horribly and I just can't <laughs> even stand it? But it worked this might out. might be a turning point in our relationship. It worked out. It worked out. You had you had built enough of a, of a baseline of attraction about other things maybe. But they do find that, that Brooke Skelza, this anthropologist uh, whose work I really like, she's at UCLA and she works with the HIMBA, um, semi-nomadic pastoralists in Namibia. And one of the things she said to me when I interviewed her about those olfaction studies is, you know, maybe maybe one thing about female infidelity is that a woman might be partnered with somebody in the long term and really like him and he has a lot of great things going on. But she says maybe one of the motivations for that woman to step out um, is that the guy she's stepping out with smells better and is a better genetic match. Doesn't mean she wants to leave her long-term partner for it, but she's getting one thing from her long-term partnership and another thing from the guy whose smell is sexy, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. His perfectly smooth ball sack smells good. (laughs) That might play into it too. I just could. (laughs) I just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I, I hope one day I meet somebody who got scrotox. So you can just say, I'd like to see this. Could you show me? <laughs> I wonder I how long. See your I wonder how long it works. I mean, I think both. It's at three to four months. Oh, three to four months. Okay, yeah. so it's all, sort of like the same timeline as facial Botox. Yeah, but they got to get twenty injections in in their scrotum. scrotum. Yeah, I don't know about how um, how richly innervated a scrotum is. Like how many nerve endings are on there? But it doesn't sound comfortable. No. Yeah. I mean, getting face Botox isn't comfortable. Right. So I can only imagine on the the balls. I can't imagine. Balls. I Ryan, can, you yeah. have balls. Would you get Scrotox? No Scrotox. <laughs> Ryan. Do you think it would hurt? Yes. Okay. Very painful. Okay. Right. Now and, we know. And your female partner has never criticized your scrotum. Do okay. you have a large scrotum? Average? I don't know I feel like we should stop putting him on the spot. But you know him better than I do, so I'm just going to follow your lead. Yeah, we'll just tease him from the sidelines over here. So one thing I was, I kept going back to think about this ugly cry, and it kind of drives me a bit crazy, and I know, total side note, is the fact that, like, if you're crying – that's like a beautiful expression of yourself. And so don't judge the way that your face looks. Also, sometimes when I laugh, I think I look insane, but I know that I'm laughing. And to me, that that's having beautiful and having a great time. So who cares? Like you can't just perfectly laugh all the time, especially if you're belly right. laughing. Like you get a double chin, your nose squinches up, your eyeballs go away. Right. That's Maybe right. You need a little sweat a little bit because it's that funny. Yeah. Crying. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So in these moments of emotional expression, these women are policing themselves. Yeah. Let or it go. Policing themselves afterwards. And I'm not blaming them. I'm not blaming them for posting about the ugly cry. Um, I think it, you know, points the finger at our culture that expects women to always be perfect and desirable. And, you know, there's this way in which we're only now getting to the point where we don't define female sexuality as women being sexy for men, mm-hmm. right? For a long time, female sexuality was literally what men found attractive about women and women being sexy for men. And so I feel like the ugly cry is a little bit of like a backlash to that, mm-hmm. that, you know, just the relentless... Um, unremitting expectation that women be attractive for the camera, for the male gaze, every second of every day, even when they're sobbing. Hey, we cry, and it's not always pretty. 
Who cares? Crying is about how you feel, not about how you look. Yeah. Same with laughing. It's inherently awesome and beautiful. Let it go. Let it go. Let them tears fly. Yeah. What? So this. Could we start an Instagram hashtag? um, Ugly cry, not sorry. I don't know. Something. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Because. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's try to get it going. The ugly cry society. Here we are. (laughs) And it's like, just pictures it's of just, people ugly crying. And not being sorry. Right. And not apologizing. And maybe they're crying. They put like a middle finger up. That'd be good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so many yeah. ways to do this. Yeah. Well, let's work on it. And, we're a, and you're in a mid-cry. Do not forget to take a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Apart Document it. This. Document yeah. this. You know, people, women tried to do that no makeup thing on Instagram where they, I don't remember what the hashtag was, but to sort of push back against the idea that... Look, I mean, let's face it. We live, a lot of us, on social media. And that's our second self. Our digital self is our second self. And so, you know, to a certain extent, curating our image is inevitable and just a new thing that we do in this new ecological niche of tech and social media. Um, But there's a way in which, you know, it becomes so oppressive and time-consuming Asymmetrically so for women, um, you know, if you're bi- if there's buy-in that you're supposed to be pretty and if you want followers, you have to look perfect. And so I just often think about the sheer time and energy that goes into looking really good every second. I like looking good. Do you like looking good? It's mm-hmm. fun to be sexy. It's fun to dress up. It's fun to do all this stuff. But like if we didn't have to bother with it, would we um, have a female president? So there is this. <laughs> would we have lots of female presidents? Maybe. Yeah. That's a would, good would we have more female CEOs? Would we? Yeah. So anyway. So we, Aubrey and I were talking about this recently. If sex were taken out of the equation, let's pretend like we were aliens and we didn't have genitals to have sex, how would that change how you went through life or how you related to others? <laughs> Right. So for me, I was like, well, I honestly don't feel like because then you think about certain relationships. Like, let's think if I if I couldn't have sex with that person, would I still want to hang out with them? That's a good question. For me, it was more so like, well, I probably wouldn't worry about getting my nails done or Botox or doing my hair or whatever. So for me, I I think it goes into whatever your insecurity is a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And so obviously for me, I I am doing things to look good for the opposite sex. So it brings that into mm-hmm. more of my awareness. Which can be really fun. It can be totally fun. Those but at least you have it as an awareness. Fun. But yeah, they're really right. time consuming. Okay, well, if I didn't have genitals, I wouldn't get a bikini wax. And that would save me <laughs> a lot of time and, and pain. pain and energy. You know, you, should, you could get lasered. It's way easier. I'm not doing that. It doesn't That sounds hurt. really painful. I know. I just get waxed. That's way more painful. I don't know. I'm telling you. I know it sounds gnarly to get a laser to your vagina. It does. However, I finally did it within the past six months. And I was like, wow, why did it take me this long? Because I've been waxing. I've been shaving. Whatever it is. Now, laser can never go back. You know what I like? I'm just going to say this. I really like the return of the bush. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, It's not for everybody, but like in the 70s, people thought um, female pubic hair was like beautiful and vital and super Mm -hmm. sexy. Mm -hmm. And like nobody was, people might have been, women might have been, I don't know, waxing their legs, shaving their legs, but like a big bush was just considered, you know, very attractive and hot. And um, it's, it's really interesting through the lens of anthropology and and through the lens of understanding culture and and what gender is in our culture, I I would love like a gallery of photos of what's happened to female pubic hair from like the seventies until Ooh, now. Like a coffee book, mm, like a coffee table book, coffee table yeah. book. And it, w- I mean, it could be chronological, or you could just throw it in. J- j- you're probably too young to remember the era where the Brazilian bikini wax was a huge thing, and it first started in New York. Yeah, no, I think it's still kind of a big thing. Okay, it was huge when it first started. I think in the '90s in New York, and there was this place, the J Sisters. They were Brazilian, and they did Brazilian bikini waxes, which at the time you couldn't get 
met in London, they were considered a little too, the language they used was that it was dangerous and unsanitary. And so women would come, female celebrities would come from London to New York to the J sisters wow. to get a Brazilian bikini wax. And people listening probably know what it is, right? It's like an everything wax except you leave a little strip. Oh, the landing um, strip. The landing okay, strip. So it's I called. The I Brazilian think that's, was. It's just the whole thing gone. Like maybe it is the whole thing. clean kitten. Completely clean, clean. Clean kitten. Is that the terminology? Okay. You, I don't know. You, I you teach it, me I so much. But, uh, but I. But I do think the strip is like that's the landing strip, and if you want everything gone, then you get like a full a full Brazilian. That's f- the terminology. Is, is, so full Brazilian is like everything gone. The whole thing gone. Okay. Then All right. you can get your landing strip, which is just a strip kind of like above the clit that goes straight down. Or, I mean, you could do like a design if you'd like. Right. Okay. You, know, you can get creative. So now that was like really a big deal, I think, through the 90s and maybe through the aughts. And then I just remember this moment where I, maybe it was even in like the New York Times magazine where they wrote about, you know, what's coming back, not doing that anymore. Yep. Um. So I don't have a point here. My point, and I I don't have one, is that practices around that have changed a lot. Viva la bush. Yeah. Where are we going to go with that? I don't know what's going to happen next. But another really time-consuming practice that women have been told is the only way to be sexy. And now women younger than me are saying, I'm not doing that. No. I'm into my bush. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have no problem. Sometimes I like looking at... um, websites online, like when I was researching on True, I would look at, it's really interesting how um, social media has changed the way transactional sex workers or sex workers are able to work. So they often have these really beautiful websites and Twitter accounts and stuff. And so I was able to um, look at some data uh, about, you know, because... Um, Such a tough job. Yeah, escorts put themselves, female escorts, you know, um, put themselves out there on their websites. And um, I was able to see just like how much it had gone out of style to do a total Brazilian. I don't know so why, it made me glad. Well, like there were some escorts who had a full-on bush. Great. Yeah. Coming in bush first. So, you know. I like it. Among other things, <laughs> it just saves you time. It does. We got to get and it, nails and done. It's, we and it's kind of hair. It's kind of unapologetic, right? It's mm-hmm. like kind of unapologetic. Yeah. And, yeah. And, self-con- and self-confident. Yeah. I don't know. There's something kind of cool about it. Okay. I think I've made us talk about women's pubic care enough. <laughs> <laughs> You were really nice to let me go on about it for that long. But I think it matters. It does I think, matter. I think it's an interesting metric of, you know, how we feel about women, what we make them do to their pubic hair, what we expect them to. I'm done well, now. Well, also kind of like men. <laughs> like I'm done. No more no more women's uh, pubic hair. <laughs> but men, I don't I, – I like hair. I don't want you to shave it all the way off. I don't want it to be completely nude because then it's – I don't know. To me, it's a little awkward – but a little scaping, a manscaping, I'm not mad at. You know, there's this anthropologist. His name is Rick Bribiescus. He's at Yale. And he has written about um, male self-care um, in the digital age and just like, you know, a newer kind of younger generation of men. The pressures that they're feeling, back to Scrotox, to be visually <laughs> perfect and, yeah, to do manscaping and, um, you know, to be perfectly fit and so and to, um, to be beautiful. Um, so this is kind of a change. Like, you know, powerful men, when I was a kid, one of the ways they showed their power was to just kind of let their bodies go. Mm. It was like, I'm so rich. I'm so successful you know, I'll eat a vegetable if my wife puts it in front of me. Um, so it's amazing to think about how masculinity has changed over several decades. And self-care has become a big thing for men. And spending a lot of time at the gym and being on a paleo diet and, you know, taking supplements. But working out hard to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, do whatever's going to make you feel best, right? As yeah. long as you're doing it for yourself and you're not constantly trying to do it for validation of the opposite right. sex because then you won't be able to do enough and then 
you might look a little crazy. That's right. <laughs> so men now, I think, I think this generation of men is under pressure to peacock in yes. ways in ways that a previous generation of men weren't. So to me, through the lens of anthropology, that's like a fascinating shift in the culture. Men feeling this pressure, mm-hmm. and Scrotox feels like like the craziest horizon of it. You guys, please don't get Scrotox. <laughs> like my God, it's just just let your balls hang, let them flap. Let them just breathe and be wrinkly. Yeah, I hope we don't live in a world where my sons will grow up and feel compelled to have scrotox. <laughs> <laughs> would they tell you? No, I wouldn't. I don't know. We wouldn't. We probably wouldn't have a conversation. Although my kids and I have some really fun, interesting conversations now that I wrote a book about female sexuality. How cool is that? It like it opens the door to have these open, deeper conversations that weren't there before because that's something that I realized by speaking so openly about my unconventional relationship Mm. and you know coming from a family who they don't quite understand it or agree with it but it does create space for cool conversations that wouldn't have taken place otherwise and I've actually found that it brought us closer right and I'm sure you know if you have nieces or nephews or just younger people in your life, you know, it's hard to measure the impact that you'll be able to have and how how many more options they might feel like they have and how they might grow up differently knowing, you know, that their aunt or their cousin or whatever you are to them mm-hmm. is doing this thing. I mean, it makes it makes a big difference. Yeah. Living your truth, speaking your truth, yeah. being you and not somebody else. It's much easier to do that. Right. A lot less pressure. It's a lot less work and it feels better. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, we had a really cool event last night. We did. Here in Austin. And it was our very first one and it sold completely out. And we have another one tonight. We do. Um, This is February, but so no one will be listening to this for a hot minute. But well, it was awesome. It was. It was really fun to hear you talk about um, your adventures. changing up your relationship and the difficult parts of it, the rewards, the struggles. I like the way you didn't sugarcoat it at all. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at sugarcoating things. That's, yeah. it's <laughs> a good quality. And um, I liked the way I talked about the research and you talked about the way you were kind of a living example yeah, of some of the research about female sexuality. Uh-huh. You, you you get the crowd and their minds starting to open up to what is possible and it starts mm. to shift how they feel about things. But then they're like, wait a minute, how could I ever do this? And that would never work in a real life situation. Mm-hmm. And then I get up there and it's like, well, let me tell you about how it did or didn't work. Right. And it's <laughs> for brave. me, it's brave to put yourself out there like that. And I kept thinking about how many people in the audience, I mean, all those people who had come from many cities, right? Even Vancouver flew all the Boise, way down to Austin. Boise, Vancouver, Boston, New York, New York because they, they wanted to hear the research about female sexuality. Yep. They wanted to hear a relationship coach and somebody who was living um, in a consensually non-monogamous relationship and thriving there. They wanted to travel a great distance to hear about that. Um, because it was so interesting to them and it felt like something that might work for them. Yep. So that was really great to be in the room with all those people. It was so cool. It was yeah. so cool. And and people were so open and even if they, you know, didn't quite understand it or lived that way, they were just so appreciative to be able to receive this information that they wouldn't have otherwise. And it was just something different. And so that was uh, yeah. awesome. And I feel like one of the most interesting parts about it for people who were there was to be around people who were in what you call unconventional relationships, to see and to have the opportunity to meet people who were consensually Mm non-monogamous and to see that they're normal, happy people and that this is one possible path. It's not for everyone. There's nothing wrong with you if you want to do it. And there's nothing wrong with you if you don't want to do it. It's all within the range of normal. But it was nice, um, you know, I think that people got to be in the room with people who were living a way they were considering, could this work with me? Mm -hmm. Have an opportunity to talk to them, hear their stories, and just make 
more informed decisions about what they might want to try. Yeah. That was a really cool Mm -hmm. part of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And hopefully we'll be able to do more of these these type of events and workshops across the country because I know we've already been getting so many people hitting us both up. Yes. In the DM, sliding into the DM saying, yeah. come to New York, come, come to, to San, San Francisco. Francisco, come to Colorado, right. come to Miami. Yeah. Oh, I've yeah, Miami. I've got, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're hearing from the same people. Yeah. They're doubling, they're doubling they're like, up. like, someone, you guys are going to listen to me and you're coming to Miami. Look, twist my rubber arm, anything to go to Miami. I always say that DMs provide a lot of interesting raw data. And one of the things that I noticed in my DMs is, you know, I put up a chart last night when I was doing a talk. It was a a chart from a study about who is polyamorous. Um, What are the other ways they identify? This is great. And they often the people who are polyamorous in the study identified as pansexual or bisexual. Something like 68% of them were married. And then I loved the statistic that 18% of them were in IT. (laughs) So one thing that I've learned from my DMs is that there's a really high correlation between women who are really into yoga and women who are really interested in consensual (laughs) non-monogamy. A lot of my DMs asking me to do a workshop or to be in touch are from women who are into yoga. So go figure. I don't know. Well, they're nice and flexible. Right. So maybe the more flexible you are, the more you want to have it. Maybe the more flexible your body is, the more flexible you are about your sexual strategies and interests. Oh, I don't know. I just knows? I just threw that out there. I was just kidding <laughs> about that. But, you know, yeah, the DMs. We're hearing from a lot of people, mm-hmm. and we need to take our show on the road for them. Yeah, we're going on a world tour. Whitney and Wednesday take the world. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. No scrow talks allowed. No scrow talks allowed. And if you do show up to a workshop and you do have scrow talks, please let me know. I would like to see your ball sack. Right. And if you come to our workshop and we make you cry, you're not allowed to use the hashtag ugly cry when you post about it. Only we're not doing cry, that not to ourselves. Sorry. Yeah, we're we're not doing that to ourselves anymore. No, we're not. All right. This was awesome. Right. This was like the best first podcast we could possibly ever do. I'm glad we did it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I love this. Well, thank you so much. Love you. You're the best. Love you, Whitney. (laughs)